Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. The famous line, to be or not to be. To be or not to be. Beautiful and fearful symmetry, isn't it? But it actually doesn't say anything. It doesn't say who. There's no subject. There's no object. And even the verb itself, a swift, nice verb, it doesn't actually uh, specify what it is. So how do you translate a line like that? Nazikanis inamizi. La vera era vera. In very few languages can you actually say to be or not to be. You would have to specify to, 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 to do what. See or do not see. The way that line is translated can tell you a lot about the anxieties, hopes, and attitudes of the day. He decided to translate this opening line as, is it good or evil? rather than to be or not to be, because this was an allegorical moment, a moment in which Ukraine was stuck between the two ideologies of Nazism and the Soviet system, and everyone knew that the country wouldn't survive. Today on Ideas, the final installment in the 2021 edition of Ideas at Stratford, produced in collaboration with the Stratford Festival in Ontario. This year, we're exploring what happens when you take classic Shakespeare plays and transport them across time and space. Translation etymologically helps us to understand that it's taking something from one place to another. In this episode, we're focusing on translation. The task of the translator is many times to leave the text aside and then rewrite it with other instruments. The translator has to reach beyond the words to access the ideas and emotions contained in a text. But that is the essential impossibility of translation, because thinking in one language is not the same as thinking in another. Despite its perils, translation can open up a familiar story It's an exchange of ideas. It's an opening up of windows and doors into other worlds. And help us see Shakespeare's ideas and each other in a new light. We can actually also rediscover ourselves through translations. On our virtual stage, I'm joined by Alexa Alice Jobin, Alberto Mangel and Irina Makarek. And as a note, we are still speaking to guests at home due to COVID-19, so the sound quality varies. 
Alexa Alice Jobin is Professor of English Theatre, International Affairs and East Asian Languages and Culture at George Washington University. Her books include Shakespeare in East Asia. Alberto Mangel is an Argentine-Canadian translator and writer and a former director of the National Library of Argentina. He now leads the Center for Research into the History of Reading in Lisbon. Irina Makarek is Distinguished Professor of English at the University of Ottawa. She studies how different cultures and periods transform Shakespeare's work, especially in times of political upheaval, such as the Russian Revolution, World War II, and the war in Afghanistan. I wondered if we could begin with a basic question. What does translation mean to each of you? And Irina, we'll start with you. Translation to me is resurrection. And with resurrection, we think of becoming something else in an afterlife. It means a rebirth, but a rebirth into a new form. And essentially, resurrection for Shakespeare means that he has become a world writer. If he weren't translated into all of these languages, he would remain an English writer. But he belongs to the world now. Alexa? Literary translation is a love affair. It could be love at first sight or hot pursuit of a lover's elusive nodding approval. It could also be unrequited love. You're putting all this effort to convey what you believe to be the meaning of a text. And it can be a test of devotion and faith. Translation for me involves artistic creativity rather than finding equivalences across languages. Through translation, we can learn a great deal about how others think about the same topics or stories. And we can find kindred spirits. We can actually also rediscover ourselves through translations. Very often the classics need to be retranslated for each generation. I think that's why, because each generation has different concerns, different understanding of the world. And that's why we need new translations of the same works. Thank you, Alexa. A love affair, Alberto. What does translation mean to you? Certainly a, a love affair, as Alexa said, which is many times unrequited, but um, essentially, translation etymologically helps us to understand that it's taking something from one place to another. And it shares, curiously enough, the same etymology that metaphor. So translation can be a metaphor of the original. Jorge Luis Borges, who thought so carefully about translation and declared the translator to be the best of readers, because a translator has to go deep into the work and find mechanisms and secrets that the writer perhaps does not know. And the translator himself is the one who knows the text, whatever text that happens to be, Hamlet, Macbeth, Lear, better than any other literary critic, because that translator needs to decide what to do with that text. What every word means and whatever word means within the larger context, both of that work, but also of that culture. So it's bringing together the past into the present into a kind of negotiation and a, a possible opening up of challenging ideas. Irina 
made a, an important point of trying to discover th through translation the thoughts in the original text. But that is the essential impossibility of translation, because thinking in one language is not the same as thinking in another. And in fact, the language that we use dictates our thoughts, creates our ideas. We think that we speak a language, but it's the language that speaks us. Picking up on that point, if there are perhaps sort of perhaps I would say three main parts that are being translated, uh, we've heard this from all of you in the past, words, ideas and emotions and the cultural context. How do you approach each of those in translation? You don't approach them consciously. I don't think a translator sets out and says, I will find this vocabulary to translate this text. I will look for this music. Um, it happens in the same way that the creation of the original text happens. Whistler's idea that art happens, translation happens. And then afterwards, you can go and find explanations and reasons for what you do. Um, but it, it, to me, it becomes so clear, especially in the case of Shakespeare, that the task of the translator is many times to leave the text aside and then rewrite it with other instruments, but really leave it aside. Silencio. ¿Qué iluminada está aquella ventana a las tinieblas? Es Julieta. Es el sol en el oriente. Surge espléndido sol y con tus rayos mata la luna enferma y envidiosa porque tú, su doncella, es más clara. One of the translations of Shakespeare that I prefer in Spanish, for instance, is Pablo Neruda's version of Romeo and Juliet, which is nothing like Romeo and Juliet, but it is a brilliant translation. Es ella en la ventana. Es la que amo. While uh, a, a literal translation by a translator whose name I don't want to remember translates the milk of human kindness as su lechosa humanidad, which translates back into English into his sort of milky humanity, which turns into something disgusting uh, like a yogurt <laughs> gone off. <laughs> it's, and, and there are so many examples like that, some of which we'll, we'll visit, uh, revisit in this conversation. But uh, Shakespeare is the point that we're here. And I, so I wondered, why is Shakespeare so widely translated? That is a very good chicken and egg question. <laughs> and I sense some uh, traps in there. I, I think it's a self-reinforcing cycle. Because uh, even early on, there's prestige attached to having a version of Shakespeare in a specific language to say we too are capable of translating Shakespeare. Even kings participated in this, and I think it's significant. So the reason is historical and political. But on the other hand, I think it's the elasticity of the text that piques the curiosity of artists. Everyone wants to, to give it a try, to, to, to see 
what rewriting in Alberto's term they, they can come up with. So it's not necessarily the artist that venerates Shakespeare because it missed Shakespeare so great, but rather these texts are enigmatic, full of full of holes. It's porous. There are holes there, there's opacity there. He doesn't write moral melodramas. He he writes complex uh, poetic drama, and poetic drama is the most difficult of all, both to write and I think to translate. So Shakespeare has not only iambic pentameter, and he has rhyme, and he has prose, and he's a thinker. So he's giving us complex ideas in a, a, a varied range of poetic tools at his disposal. He's the gold standard for a challenge, I think, for any translator. But it can also offer escape, it can offer solace, it can offer um, the pleasures of dealing with, with another great mind. And we've seen that, especially, I think, in wartime circumstances. I'm thinking of uh, Pasternak's translations in the Second World War, where the horrors of war allowed him to spend time just translating and trying to escape from what is happening around him. So there is lots to gain, but it is a bit of a minefield. And Shakespeare himself was aware of what a minefield translation can be. There was a scene in, in Henry V where two characters struggle to even understand each other, to communicate with each other uh, across languages. What, what do you think we can learn from Shakespeare himself, the plays themselves, about translations, limitations, and the possibilities? Alexa. I love that thing. Thank you for bringing it up in Henry V. I cannot speak your England. Fair, Catherine, if you will love me soundly with your French heart, I will be glad to hear you confess it brokenly with your English tongue. Do you like me, Kate? Pardonnez-moi, I cannot tell what is like me. An angel is like you, Kate, and you are like an angel. Que dit-il que je suis semblable à les anges? Oui, vraiment, sur votre grâce, ainsi dit-il. King Harry is wooing Catherine, who is perhaps being coil. In fact, there are many interpretations of this particular translation scene that Nala brought up. The French character pretends not to speak English. And in fact, if you look in Shakespearean text, it's a text that is translated, that is self-translated. It's text that is about translation. She says, uh, I cannot tell what is that. I cannot tell what is that. No, Kate. I will tell thee in French, which I'm sure will hang about my tongue like a new married wife about her husband's neck, hardly to be shook off. Je compte sur le possession de France et euh, quand vous avez le possession uh, de moi, does she really speak heavily accented, accented English, or is this simply a strategy to fend off Harry? There are many ways to understand that. And and I, I love it when when foreign languages, including Welsh, right? Welsh is not English. So, so the multicultural uh, British Isles, when all of these elements are introduced into the text to put into question in what Englishness is. And I think that's why Shakespeare is so fascinating because the text 
themselves already contain translational, translated moments, characters operating in translation. Sometimes because sometimes as a strategy of survival, sometimes perhaps to signal a gap that you cannot cross. So if you look closely, you realize Shakespeare's texts themselves are already about translations before they were translated. And that scene in Henry V, particularly rich when it's performed in French in France. Irina, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I was thinking actually of another play, A Midsummer Night's Dream, where Bottom is described by his friends, Bottom, thou art translated. He is transformed. He's, he's got these horns. He is a different sort of person, neither animal nor beast, but a bit of, but a bit of both. And I take that as Shakespeare's idea of translation. Bottom goes through this extraordinary adventure in the middle of the night on Midsummer Night's Eve. Everything is turned upside down, but it's such a glorious dream. He doesn't want to leave it. He wants to write it down when he's finished. So I think, I think he sees a lot of beauty in translation. So there is beauty, but there are acknowledged, as you've all said already, limitations. So Alberto, what is, what is among the things that, what are among the things that are lost when we are translating Shakespeare? Shakespeare wrote in English. This is a, a banal statement but it explains the difficulty of translating Shakespeare. And he writes in an English of his time, and he uses uh, all the nuances and colloquialisms and specialized languages and other languages, as we say, uh, French and Welsh and Latin. Um, however, the difficulty stems from the fact that it's English. And as Alexa pointed out, so cleverly, um, the to be or not to be is impossible to translate into Spanish because you have to make a choice. Ser or no ser is not enough because to be means to physically be in a place, physically be in your flesh, and to exist. So ser y estar are the two verbs that uh, um, denote those two meanings in Spanish. So the an accurate translation would be ser o estar o no ser no estar, which is an impossible and very ugly piece of writing. Um, the translators choose, of course, the most obvious one, the one of ser o no ser, to to be alive or uh, simply to be dead. Um, but that is trivializing Shakespeare because Shakespeare was certainly conscious of the richness of the language and not afraid of ambiguity. You've written that Spanish is a more ambiguous language than English. I'm just wondering how else does it complicate the process of translation? I mean, there is the kind of nuance you mentioned now. How else does it complicate it? Because it's a way of thinking, uh, English can allow for a well, the hesit let's give the example, the classical example of uh, a Hamlet's hesitation. That hesitation translated into Spanish in most versions creates a character that is not heroic, that, that is cowardly. He can't make a decision because the language in Spanish doesn't allow to reflect 
that aspect of philosophical doubt that is in Shakespeare. While in German, for instance, uh, Irina was mentioning the popularity of, of Shakespeare in, in other countries. Uh, during the Third Reich, Hamlet was the most performed play, and it was understood as the hero who has reflected and goes into action, which is something that is not in Shakespeare, very clearly is not in Shakespeare. He's forced into action eventually and turns out badly. But uh, for um, the, the Germans of that time, because they said Shakespeare is not an English playwright, he is a German playwright. So you've all brought up some case studies to be or not to be being kind of the obviously the most famous and we can you can say more about that if you like but i want to ask you about these two lines from othello if virtue no delighted beauty lack your son-in-law is far more fair than black alexa how have translators in different languages approached uh, languages approach those two lines thank you for bringing this up these are the lines that the Duke uh, says to Brabantio, Desdemona's father, in reference to the so-called elopement, because Othello secretly marries Desdemona, and yet he defends himself so eloquently in Act 1, Scene 3, in front of the court, defending his true love. So justly to your grave ears, I'll present how I did thrive in this fair lady's love, and she in mine. Say it, Othello. So the underhanded praise goes, if virtue no delighted beauty lack, Othello is far more fair than black, more fair than what he appears to be. And noble senior, if virtue no delighted beauty lack, your son-in-law is far more fair than black. You can see all the tricky words right here, keywords fair, and black. They are morally loaded in a lot of the translations. They tend to turn fair into beautiful, handsome, white, uh, virtuous, morally, morally righteous, and they do the same thing with the word black. Wenn Türen die glänzendeste Schönheit ist, so ist euer Tochtermann mehr weiß als schwarz. If virtue is the most bright shining beauty, then your daughter's husband is more white than black. German, 1766. So that tends to echo Elizabethan understanding of what being fair and black would mean beyond the complexion. But there are other ways to kind of evade the racist language. Si la virtud es el mejor adorno, no hay duda que vuestro yerno es hermoso. If virtue is the best ornament, there is no doubt that your son-in-law is handsome. Spanish, 1965. So translators would come in and try to avoid the moralization of those words and simply saying he looks uh, better than he may appear to your eyes. Aya rast ast ke pak deli o bozorgvari zibast? Albatte. Pas damad shoma az zibatarin mardom jahan ast. Is it right that purity and generosity are beautiful? Of course. So your son-in-law is the most beautiful person in the world. Persian, 2009. I think that's a perfect example. I'm so glad, Nala, you brought it up because it, this is a case of something that can become controversial in our times. How, how do you translate that away? I, I've seen people attempting to translate problems away. Um, you can see this. My field is film studies. So in film 
Subtitles are really important. Subtitles are condensed form of translations, and they often gloss over undesirable things that are said by characters, um, or perhaps they change slightly the meaning to make it palatable. If Shakespeare were to visit our time today, he would probably be very confused how we would read plays like The Merchant of Venice and Othello this way. And I think some of that is embedded unconsciously in how people would translate either verbally those words like fair and black or embody these characters on stage today, another form of translation, right? Because words uh, do not mean in and by themselves. I, I have to echo what Alberto said earlier because uh, uh, we don't speak the language, language speaks us. So the, the modern day American English, British English would probably speak us, speak for us because it formulates our thoughts. It's simply not possible to think of, think of the words fair and black quite in the same context as they appeared in Othello. He hath disgraced me and hindered me half a million laughed at my losses, mocked at my gains, scorned my nation, thwarted my bargains, cooled my friends, heated my enemies, and what's his reason? I am a Jew! Another good example, of course, is The Merchant of Venice, which we have to remember was a comedy in Shakespeare's times with Shylock as the butt of the joke. Uh, the audiences predominantly white audiences did not raise any objection to that. In our post-Holocaust, post 9 post-9-11 world, it's no longer possible to entertain such readings. We always see Shylock as a tragic hero. Hath that a Jew eyes? Hath that a Jew hands? Organs? Dimensions? Senses? Affections? Passions? Fed with the same food? Hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means. Just a, a, a telling example of how people figure our current racial relations into understanding a particular story. How do you translate Shylock into Hebrew or Yiddish today? I think that part of the fact that the translator has to face is that because Shakespeare is not a banal writer, because Shakespeare is a genius, his characters have sufficient ambiguity to move from comedy to tragedy, to say, of course Shylock is a clown, uh, somebody who uh, asks for a pound of flesh, can you, not, can you take him seriously? In fact, uh, in Argentina, there is a farce that was built on uh, the idea of uh, uh, judging Shylock for exactly that as a buffoon. And you can have the interpretation of Shylock as the victim. His speech about, if you prick us, don't we bleed? If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you rogue us, shall we not revenge? It's so important in contemporary terms, when we look at our neighbors, when we look at refugees, when we look at people suffering all around us, and every one of them can say, 
But if you prick us, don't we bleed? We are like you. And that is what Shylock is saying. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also find us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Today on Ideas, the third of a series we call Ideas at Stratford, produced in association with Ontario's Stratford Festival, programs exploring themes in Shakespeare's plays that illuminate our lives today. This program is about the promise and peril of translating Shakespeare. I'm speaking with Alexa Alice Jobin, who studies Shakespeare in East Asia, Alberto Mangel, an Argentine-Canadian translator and writer, and Irina Makarek, a Canadian scholar who studies Shakespeare translations and adaptations in times of war and political upheaval. Look where he comes again! The same figure as the king that's dead. Thou art a scholar. Speak to it, Horatio. Looks it not like the king Margaret, Horatio. Most like. It harrows me with fear and wonder. It will be spoke to. Speak to it, Horatio. What art thou that usurps this time of night together with that fair and warlike form in which the majesty of buried Denmark did sometimes march? By heaven, I charge thee, speak. It is offended. See, it talks away. Stay. Speak. Speak! I charge thee, speak! Tis gone and will not answer. Oh no, Horatio, you tremble and look pale. Is not this something more than fantasy? What think you want? I know not, but in the gross and scope of my opinion, this bodes some strange eruption to our state. How does the political context shape how a play like Hamlet is translated? I think we first of all have to think about the fact that the director is the translator. Right, He's translating from the page to the stage, and he has to make various decisions. One of the productions that I worked on was a 1943 production of Hamlet in Lviv in western Ukraine under the Nazi occupation, where the Ukrainian theater, the opera theater, which is a gorgeous uh, theater, was allowed by the Ukrainian troops for a few days each week to perform plays. And because... The Ukrainians were putting on Hamlet, which is so well respected by the Germans and, and Shakespeare, as Alberto said, more Teutonic, more Germanic than the, the Germans even himself. They allowed this production to go forward. And what the director did was to cut out all of the Fortinbras subplot. So in that play, we have 
three revengers. We have Hamlet. We have, of course, Laertes. And we have the, the Prince of Norway, Fortinbras, who at the end comes to conquer Denmark and is the occupational power. He has destroyed. The whole country is destroyed. There's no one left. There's no heir. And that, that um, subplot was removed so that the Germans would not, um, in fact, maybe shoot the, the actors and the directors too. The translation was also a very interesting one. It was a translation by Mikhailo Rudnitsky. And he had no trouble translating to be or not to be. It works very well in Ukrainian. It's the second line in Ukrainian that is more problematic. Tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, etc. How do you translate nobler? And in some cases, some translators have tra translated as uh, which means more like chivalrous to noble and others, um, which has an element of blessing in it. Um, but the actor in this case, either because he deliberately decided to do this, he decided to translate this opening line as, is it good or evil? Rather than to be or not to be. Because this was an allegorical moment, a moment in which Ukraine was, uh, you know, stuck between the two ideologies of Nazism and uh, the Soviet system, and everyone knew that the country wouldn't survive. And Hamlet represented that moment and questioned whether it was better to survive and do nothing or to actively fight. Just to follow up on that, Irina, let's stay with you for a moment. But what about in 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 uh, in so in the Soviet Union? What sort of potentially subversive politics could there be in translating Shakespeare in that time? We'd have to go back to the 19th century very quickly, and that is under the the 19th century Tsars. Translation was extremely dangerous, if not revolutionary. So it was very strictly controlled. And for example, in Ukraine, there were two ukazes, two decrees of 1863 and 1876, in which all translations of any foreign works, including the Bible and Shakespeare, were forbidden. All Ukrainian books were taken off the shelves. Uh, there was no ability to use the language in the public sphere, in education and culture and anything. So when the Civil War broke out, when the, the revolution uh, broke out, the first thing that Ukrainians did was they started madly translating everything they could. And that meant both works of the past and works in the present. So, you know, Bernard Shaw, as well as Shakespeare, everything they could get their hands on, because this was an opening onto another world. The, the problem of the prohibition against translation or the control continued uh, to be even further part of the, the system, certainly under Stalin, who was a micromanager in terms of culture. He said it was more important to, the production of souls was more important than the production of tanks. And he was very actively involved in censoring every single text and every single translation. And so anything that, that seemed to challenge the authority was not only subversive, but very dangerous in terms of the, the lives of those involved in these productions. 
Alexa, you've also looked at this matter, and I wanted to ask you specifically at another translation of Hamlet about how the play was translated in po- post-Tiananmen uh, China. As Irena said, Hamlet is more political than we are used to think in English language traditions. People tend to think it's about uh, procrastination and such. It's actually about foundational myth uh, inside the the play itself. And globally, if you look globally in translation and, and, and performance, the play has often been put to political uses. And there, there are good reasons uh, why Stalin would ban a play like Hamlet. And in China as well, the play has been used as a platform to talk about sensitive topics of succession, of revolution, particularly in the post-Tiananmen Square massacre, a very difficult moment for China, a, a failed moment for the reformers who were hoping to transform the country from a communist system to a more democratic inclusive uh, uh, system. In the aftermath of Tiananmen Square, there's a lot of censorship. So artists did not feel that they had the freedom to speak up. Hamlet came in handy at that moment. This is uh, 1989, roughly around provocative and creative rewriting was by the by the theater guru Lin Zhaohua who gave us a Hamlet production with three Hamlets in it. With three different actors all playing the same role essentially to say that it's we are Hamlet. Hamlet is every man, and the idea that it's every man is it's interchangeable. No matter how you present yourself, you end up. It's a very bleak view of history. No matter uh, which side you are coming from, you end up as a victim of larger forces of history beyond the control of the individual. So, if Hamlet, the, the story is about individualism, Lin's reimagination of three Hamlet points to the unavoidable larger political forces that no matter how much effort you put in, you simply cannot transcend it. Alberto. Yeah, I was just going to ask Alberto, how, how do you think those translations change the way we think about the play itself and how it approaches the idea of political legitimacy? Irina made the important observation that the director is a translator and it's the director's translation that we see. Most of us would not read the text of a Shakespeare play in other languages, but see it performed. So Alexa's example of presenting a Hamlet that is all of us is a very clear indication of how the director can work as translator. And sometimes, it's not necessary to go that far. A tiny detail like a yellow wig 
can transform Richard III in a production in New York in a play about Trump. They did nothing else. They put a yellow wig on the head of the actor playing Richard and it, it created a scandal. I think that this speaks to the richness of the text, that it can be presented in a melodramatic way as it was on the Victorian scene, or it can be presented as revolutionary with exactly the same words, maybe a few cuts, but it is the director that gives it the reading. The translator will put the words on the page, but as soon as those words are spoken, they acquire a meaning that can be scandalous, that can be uh, innocuous, that can be revolutionary. If we should fail... We fail! But screw your courage to the sticking place. And we'll not fail. Alberto, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about Macbeth in all of this as well. So I'm wondering if you, if you could speak a little bit about the politics of translating Macbeth. Macbeth is the play that Borges preferred of all of Shakespeare's. And he attempted a translation uh, with his friend Bioy Casares into Spanish. And you would imagine that these two great writers with their deep knowledge of English and culture and context, uh, and of course the Spanish language would produce a masterpiece. It is one of the flattest translations of Shakespeare that I know because they were so careful not to miss any of the nuances that they recognized. They were so careful to try and recreate the uh, psychological conflict in Macbeth that they forgot that all that is true, all that is there, but that a literary text is the words. If you don't put the words so that the actor can speak them, you have nothing. And Macbeth is, is a play that lends itself perhaps even more than, than Hamlet to be performed to the outrage of dictators, performed during Perón's dictatorship in Argentina, it was censored. Macbeth was performed in Tunisia uh, very recently. And it's just so thrilling to see it in Tunis, where it, sh where it belongs. Um, at a time, you know, we saw it last night on the day that the Prime Minister resigns and there's no government again. And, you know, the what happens after, um, I think that's a key thing within the play. So Macbeth is, of course, the rise of an ambitious dictator and in a way that perhaps speaks to us more uh, clearly than a character like Richard III, who is usually performed in one color only. Richard is evil and he is evil. While Macbeth is a much more conflicted character and the, the, the tragic end of Lady Macbeth adds to the ambiguity of Macbeth's own tragedy. It is. 
perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. Wash your hands. Put on your nightgown. Look not so pale. I tell you yet again, Banquo's buried. He cannot come out of his grave. I just want to add something to what Alexa and Irina were saying about the conversion into a, a political play. In our time, we don't realize up to what point it is revolutionary to have women play the women characters in Shakespeare. Uh, I saw a, a, a production of As You Like It by Cheek by Jowl and it was played by men who were playing the women. And you realize suddenly that the deceit of having a male actor playing a woman who dresses up as a man is, is absolutely revolutionary. And it must strike us today very differently as it struck Shakespeare, who would have been scandalized by women playing the role of his women. I find gender, in addition to race, being another very rich vector in translation, especially in a play we mentioned as you like it, but how about Twelfth Night, right? All these Shakespearean comedies involve gender crossing roles. Imagine translating those into Japanese, a language that is very gendered, and it becomes really interesting. Viola is disguised as page boy Cesario, and she's being pursued by the lovelorn Olivia. She famously says, I am the man. I am the man. If it be so, as tis, poor lady, she would better love a dream. God, disguise, I see thou art a wickedness. In Japanese, the first person pronoun, I, in addition to ore, which is very masculine, there are a number of feminine forms. So just to say I, you already have to make a decision. Do we have Viola play the ambiguity game, right? And use a feminine I and then Feminine, I am the man. And so a bit of a wink at the audience, or perhaps you do the, the masculine. I, I, so, so simply on the level of language is already so rich and fascinating in terms of embodiment, not to mention what she will appear like on stage. But in Japan, they actually have all female troops. One of them, they do musical productions and they're quite famous. They're called Takarazuka. musical, Shakespeare. So it's kind of the modern answer to the traditional Omel Kabuki. And when Takarazuka takes on Twelfth Night, you have all female cast, some playing male roles. And so here you have a, a, a kind of modern equivalent to the Renaissance era. You have this actress playing Viola, playing Cesario. So you have the dual layer gender crossing. And they present a kind of sensitive masculinity to attract female fans who are often straight rather than lesbian, but they cannot find ideal male figures in real life. So they go to theater for this escapism. There they will find ideal men played by fellow women. <laughs> Gender politics also played an important role in a translation of Love's Labor Lost, which was performed in Kabul in 2005. Irina, 
How did translators transform this into an Afghan story? Well, we start with the director again. So the director was Corinne Jaber, who is a, a Kurdish Syrian German who lived in Canada, in Montreal for a time. Inside the safety of a walled garden, Corinne Jaber is trying to coax Shakespeare out of this group of local Afghan actors. In 202, when the Taliban seemed to be leaving the, the scene in Kabul, and we had presidential elections in 2004. We have a renaissance, a theatrical renaissance, and Kurin came to Afghanistan uh, trying to put on a play. And when she dealt with the Afghans, uh, they said they didn't want to do a tragedy. They've had enough of it since 1978 when the Russians were there. They didn't want to do it. And it was astonishing to me they would choose Love's Labor's Lost, which seems to be such a very Elizabethan play, very grounded in the conceits, the language, the illusions uh, that require footnotes very often to understand. But it has a number of positive things. It's got five roles for women and five roles for men. It is an extraordinary moment in a country where men and women rarely mix, even in their own homes that a group of unrelated Afghan men and women feel free to change together. <laughs> so the idea of gender relations comes right to the top of the agenda. That's, that's one thing. It has uh, a group of young men who decide that they're going to swear an oath to study, to fast, and not to sleep. They, they create a, a male academy, that, and it will be on pain of death to talk to a woman. So we have a Taliban-like situation here that is embedded in the play. In the opening scene, the king and the princes take their vows of abstinence. But, of course, the men forget that they're supposed to welcome a diplomatic mission, and the, the diplomatic mission is led by a woman. The play is about a king and some princes who break vows of abstinence and fall in love with some visiting princesses. It turns out to be a kind of Afghan story about courtship, intermediaries, and the mask of the Muscovites, which is one of the things the, the men do in Shakespeare's play. They dress up to talk to the women and supposedly they're talking through a translator who repeats their phrases and makes them sound really useless as lovers. But the Afghans didn't want to play the Muscovites. They'd had enough of, of the Russians since 1978. So they transformed that whole section into Bollywood style dancing. <laughs> And it was a very poignant production because for the first time in decades, men and women were on the stage together. It was remarkable and showing a moment of optimism what could happen to Afghanistan, but in the end, didn't. Wajma is the 17-year-old daughter of Barishna. She dreams of an exciting future that imagines great social change in her country, a time when men and women become equal, when she can become a movie director, maybe even a pilot.
how do you think ultimately that translation might change the way we look at Shakespeare and also or how we look at each other? I think translation really opens up an alternative pathway into Shakespeare, onto world events, how we look at ourselves, how we look at others. It's simply more than one position. So I think it's beautiful. The world is rich and beautiful. Uh, very often people are more entrenched, maybe because of linguistic cultural limitation. They simply stand at the same spot and look at the world and they forgot, maybe I can move an inch. And what would it look like from this point of view? And I think that's what, what translation is doing. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. On Ideas, you've been listening to Shakespeare in Translation. It's the final installment of this year's edition of Ideas at Stratford, a collaboration with the Stratford Festival in Ontario. I was joined on the virtual stage by three guests. Alexa Alice Jobin is Professor of English, Theatre, International Affairs and East Asian Languages and Culture at George Washington University. She is also the co-founder and co-director of the Global Shakespeare's Digital Performance Archive at MIT, which contains a treasure trove of Shakespeare performances from around the world. You can find the link on our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. Alberto Mangel is an Argentine-Canadian translator and writer who now leads the Centre for Research into the History of Reading in Lisbon. Irina Makarek is Distinguished Professor of English at the University of Ottawa. She studies how different cultures and periods reinterpret, revise, transform, and employ Shakespeare's work, especially in times of political upheaval and war. The program was produced by Philip Coulter and Pauline Holdsworth. Readings by Ariel Loitoiser, Karen Perez-Lydy, and Donia Ziai. Special thanks to John Scaife in CBC Archives. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. The technical producer for Ideas is Danielle Duval. Our senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly. And I'm Nala Ayet. We leave you today with a translation of Hamlet in Klingon. Tak, pag, tak be. Dag muklek van bekelnis. Kufa, yablak san vakcha, putjesek de. Pag seng bek ahes suvme nukme sukde, et suvmo ren mogli. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.